0: Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. If you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, please go to our website, IrishHistoryShow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at Irish History Pod, or like us and follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. Now, on this episode of the show, my co-presenter, John Dorney, interviewed Dr. Jonathan Fennell, a reader in modern history at King's College London. They talked about Jonathan's book, Fighting the People's War, the British Commonwealth Armies and the Second World War. So here is John with that interview. And don't forget, please rate and review the Irish History Show on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us.
1: I'm very pleased to be joined today by Jonathan Fennell. Jonathan is an old friend of mine from from childhood, actually. Jonathan is not a historian of Ireland in the Second World War, but he's an Irish historian of World War Two. So first of all, thanks very much for joining me, Jonathan.
2: Thanks for having me, John.
1: Can I ask you how you got on to becoming a historian of the Second World War?
2: Sure. I mean, grew up in Ireland, obviously, and um, many a summer and a winter were spent in the west of Ireland with with my family. And stories upon stories about the Second World War and about military history more generally were told and told again. Um, my, my grandfather uh, was an officer in the Irish Army during during the emergency. And he had talked to Tom Barry during that time um, about how they were going to deal with an invasion if it did indeed occur and it was clear there's no way the Irish army was going to take on the Germans or whoever else might invade um, in a conventional sense so fall back on guerrilla warfare. So he went with Barry to um, cross Barry and looked at the the ambush site there as a, as a, as a tool to learn and again this story, this story was passed down from him to my father. And as a young kid, then my dad brought me around Cross Barry and, and talked about military history, war, why you go to war, and um, so this 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 aspect of history, Irish history, British and Commonwealth of history, has been kind of knocked into me from an early from an early age. Um, on the other hand, my, my English grandfather, he he served in the Merchant Navy during the war, and kind of stories of. Courage and service kind of emerged from 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 those discussions as well. So he was sunk off the west coast of Africa. He he survived, and he was on the bridge at the time. And he ran down into the into the middle of the boat and tried to open up the 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 door into the engine room, where he could hear guys screaming. But the strike of the of the torpedo had warped the the door, so he couldn't open it, even though he was a strong man. Eventually, he had to run back up and dive into the into the sea, and he and he nearly died. But all all these stories kind of came back again and again to issues of human beings, morale, surprise. You know, my my grandfather, my Irish grandfather, asked Barry, you know, why did you, why did your men come so close to the road behind this bush? Surely there was no cover for them there. He said, there's a there's a hillock just there's a little hill there. Why didn't you put them behind the hill? They would have been safer. And Barry said, well, if they got there, they couldn't hit a thing from there. So, you know, they got in close and eventually they spooked the, the British forces and, the, and they ran. So the idea that war was a, a mix of tactical and procedural elements, but also will, surprise, morale,
1: was part of, part of my upbringing, I suppose. That question of morale and the human factor of warfare informs a lot of your, your writing on, on military history, doesn't it? It does, John. And just before we, we dig into, you know, the the meat of your research on, on World War II, do you think there's a difference between the mythology of World War II in popular culture and the real history of the war?
2: There's always a difference between myth and reality to degrees, and their myths play a role. They help us tell stories that give us meaning. Um, I mean, you can see the myth of nineteen forty has been rolled out at the moment in the United Kingdom again and again to justify, to mobilize people during crisis. You know, for Britain the war was a was a very difficult experience, and it's told now in a, in a positive way. Britain saved the world. Um, it was finest hour kind of stuff. But I think the reality of the war was, was destructive for Britain. Um, Britain started the war, arguably the world's great superpower, and did not end it so. So I think, yeah, I think it's fair to say that there is a bit of a disconnect there between popular memory of the war and probably the reality that, that unfolded between 1939 and 1945.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you're predominantly a uh, historian of the British and Commonwealth experience of the war, but also, you know, it seems to me that in the, the Band of Brothers era, you know, there's, there's an American mythology of the war, which uh, possibly distorts our understanding of it, I would say, no?
2: It's, it, it is an interesting narrative, isn't it, that these apolitical young men went off on a crusade and fought for each other, that, you know, ideas weren't central to their experience. Um, and it's interesting. So I found as part of this project on the British and Commonwealth armies in the Second World War, an extraordinary range of sources. One of these is censorship summaries, right? So young fellas, the front line are writing home to their wives, to their loved ones, to their mums, their dads, their friends, etc. And those letters are turned into censorship summaries or censorship reports. And I found 925 of these things based on, I estimate, about 17 million letters sent during the war. And one of the things, I mean, so A, you know, delighted to find something like that. And then One of the narratives that emerged from these sources was British soldiers thinking about meaning, purpose, ideas, politics. They weren't apolitical. They weren't. I mean, they might well have been a band of brothers, but they were also a reflective practitioner. They were thinking about why they were stuck in this world war. They were thinking about what do I get out of my sacrifice now? If I if I sacrifice for the state now, what's going to be in it for me post? War. So there was a lot of discussion about politics, a lot of reflection about how change would happen to a greater extent, I think, than the Band of Brothers narrative suggests. These were bright young people trying to make their way in the world. They weren't just isolated groups of men being men, you know, together. There was, they were part of a community, a society, and the, the drivers
1: of change and politics
2: mattered to them, like they matter to us today.
1: Sure. And again, to people, and I recommend your your book called uh, The People's War, which which is very much on this, on the wider significance of the war. Let's turn to to the war, John, and I'm going to introduce it via an Irish angle. So Ireland was actually a Commonwealth country era, as it was known in the war, but did stay neutral. And it was the only probably major Commonwealth country to do so. Can you give us a brief introduction, John, on some of the other major Commonwealth countries? And and what was their attitude to, to this war? Was it immediately the mother countries in peril or was it more complicated than that
2: it was more complicated than that and you gotta you gotta think of the empire at this time the commonwealth countries as as a mixture of demographics and affiliations so in those countries that had the closest relationship with britain there was a greater willingness to get on board in this this crisis so the new zealanders the British you know, mainland broadly mobilized effectively for the war. And in places like that, conscription was brought in. So they could compel citizens to serve the state because there was a relatively you know, strong relationship between the citizen and the state to a degree. In those countries where there was, those Commonwealth countries, where there was a less of a close relationship or where there were portions of, this, of the community that might not be particularly fond of British, uh, the Britishness, there was more problems. So Australia, where you had a large Irish Catholic community, Canada, where you had a large French speaking community, and of course South Africa, where you had a large Afrikaans speaking community. So in those countries, there were, there was stress. There were debates about the extent of mobilization, to what extent was Britain's war our war. Now on the surface, you know, you have the New Zealanders saying basically where Britain goes, we'll go, we're all in. In Canada, In Australia, you have this dual kind of mobilization process where you can conscript for home service, but only volunteers will go overseas to fight for Britain. And in countries where there's a real sense of, um, you know, antagonism perhaps towards Britain, such as India and South Africa, where you have, I guess, a big portion of the Indian population less than devoted to empire, you can only bring in volunteerism. People have to go because they want to go, because you can't compel. In the same way that in Northern Ireland it was impossible to bring in conscription because there was a fear that it would create civil unrest. That was the story as well in you know, India, in South Africa, places like that.
1: And one parallel to Ireland, not so much in World War II, but in the First World War is the Indian army, quite a few of them volunteered to fight for the Japanese. So I say it's an echo of um, Roger Caseman's effort to recruit Irishmen in the into the German army in the First World War, very unsuccessfully, but in India, this was done and there was quite a large army. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, we've, we have a sense, don't we, of the war is fought by a whole pile of national armies. And um, this Band of Brothers thing comes back again, right? A bunch of good American boys fighting together for America, a bunch of nasty Germans fighting together for a nasty Nazi idea of Germany. But actually, you know, you had effectively a million Soviets fighting under the Germans at one stage. You had Koreans and Taiwanese fighting under the Japanese. And yes, you had a whole pile of Indian soldiers as well fighting under the Japanese. So, you know, big chunks of um, the Indian army were captured in places like Singapore. Now, it's, it's a difficult one. There's a, there's a historiographical kind of debate here. Did those who were captured in places like Singapore volunteer to fight with the Japanese because they hated imperialism and they wanted to free India from British rule? Or did they volunteer because it was a better option than being stuck in a Japanese prisoner or war camp, which, you know, you had a pretty small chance of getting out of alive. And so there's there's a debate to what extent they were political, to what extent they were just um, making sound decisions under pressure. There's no doubt after the war, uh, the Indian National Army, which was the force that fought with the Japanese, was considered um, heroic, that they'd been the true Indians that had really fought for the future of India. So again, I mean, what we can take out of it is There's certainly an element of ideas there that matter. There were certainly some Indians who were radically anti-British. And that manifested extraordinarily enough, if you look at the history of armies, in captured troops from one army, changing sides and
1: fighting with another. Which is not as uncommon as people might think, I suspect.
2: Well, in the context of the Second World War, I don't think it was massively uncommon. But yeah, I'd have to go back and look to what extent it was common in the years before that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember in the English Civil War, which is obviously in the 17th century, it's way back, but uh, you know, the main method of recruitment was uh, people who changed sides. So, okay. you know, it, it happens. Just yeah. to, one more question on that, though. Yeah. What about South Africa? Because in the First World War, there was an attempt by Afrikaners to revolt against British rule in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Was there any Afrikaners attempted to fight for the Germans in, in World War Two, or were reluctant to fight in the South African forces?
2: Absolutely. So, you can, if you, so one of the wonderful kind of categories of source I managed to find for this project were um personnel records right you know so an individual joins the army and data information is taken on their name their address their religious affiliation their occupation and I went in and I and I looked at a representative sample of South African um, files um, from the second world war And what I found was the vast majority of those who served were English-speaking South Africans so Afrikaans speaking South Africans Served, but in disproportionately small numbers. Mm. Big, you know, the dominant uh, cultural background in South Africa was was Afrikaner. If you
1: remove, obviously, natural African South, South Africans at the time. And how about Black South Africans? We're, we're going to return to this, but uh, did they serve as well? They served in
2: small numbers, really, compared to the size of the population and they weren't allowed to effectively carry weapons. They served as as pioneers, as support troops behind. And this, this was a product of racialized South African society at the time. But there were big, big chunks of Afrikaner society that was radically anti-British. Um, the Ozawa Brandvach, which was a kind of organization that. Um, Was against the war. They had well over three hundred thousand supporters at one stage during the conflict, and even at the end of the war, there were you know there were those who were disappointed at the outcome. So South Africa, like in some ways other parts of the Commonwealth, war, were torn was torn apart to a degree by the war. I mean, we're inclined sometimes, aren't we, today to come back to your initial comment about band of brothers and myth and reality. We're inclined to see the Second World War, or wars in general, as moments of unity, at least in the West, where people joined together in pursuit of a common goal rarely is the case i mean we're living through it now right i mean there are there's talk about unity but you just have to pick up the newspapers certainly in this country and in others to see that that unity is very easily shredded and
1: yeah, everybody- i should tell i should tell listeners also that johnny lives in in the uk and not in ireland at the moment now just that brings me on to my next question though johnny what what about britain itself was there was conscription all the way through world war ii unlike world war one isn't that right
2: yeah, effectively, they
1: kick off. In fact,
2: they start to conscript even before the
1: conflict begins. So, yeah, it's, it's,
2: it's, a, it's a conscript army largely. And that's, you can still volunteer if you want to get in early, um, but on the whole, it's a conscript army.
1: And um, is there any resistance to conscription in Britain itself? I, I don't, nothing, nothing significant in a sense.
2: I mean, there, there are interesting, it's hard, the statistics. So, in some countries uh, in the Commonwealth, the, the data that survives the war is, is richer than others, right? So, for instance, there, there is a sense in, in places where the data is rich, such as New Zealand, where reserved occupations or there are appeals, large numbers of appeals against military service, some of which is part of, of the process of managing reserved occupations. But a lot of it seems to be a tool for married men to stay at home um, or for those who don't want to go. And the statistics aren't rich enough to, to make a conclusive argument in the United Kingdom. But you get a sense that there were parts who were who were less keen on this war. But on the whole, you know, people served relatively
1: relatively willingly. Right. Moving on to the kind of military history aspect or you know, the combat aspect, the war didn't go that well initially for Commonwealth forces, did it?
2: Wasn't a great start, no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think there's an interesting dynamic that plays out here. The traditional story, right, is that a country powerful and strong was kind of ruined by a bunch of politicians who didn't invest early enough in armaments and mobilise the country for the impending danger of German aggression. More recent literature kind of points to Britain as being strong in in the lead up to 1939. You know, it's materially strong, it's rich, it's sitting on a vast amount of material resources from all parts of the empire. And when you think there's probably 450 million people who are citizens or subjects of this empire. It's not short of human power either. So something dramatically goes wrong when you consider the power of the United Kingdom and the way the first half of the war plays out. And the, kind of the narrative I build in the book is that it's, it's two dynamics in particular that play out um, beside each other, t-
1: training and, and morale. I mean, let's, before we yep. go into the specifics, I mean, let's, let's just lay out, there is a series of, let's say, yeah. series reverses. So there's obviously, there's, there's the defeat in the Battle of France, the evacuation yep. of the um, yep. There's defeat in Norway, there's defeat in Greece, mm-hmm. and then in the Far East, there's the surrender of Singapore to the Japanese, which, which I learned from your book. I mean, the Japanese force was quite outnumbered by, you know, a significant margin, and they, and they still caused the surrender of Singapore. So it's, it's really a series of disheartening defeats for Commonwealth forces at the beginning of the, the Second World War. Yeah,
2: I mean, disheartening is probably a polite way to put it. I mean, it's a bloody disaster. I mean, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's, it, it, for that's how the politicians felt. That's how the military generals felt. It was, how could this happen to us? You know, in, in many cases, they had as much kit, they had more people, and they weren't able to convert reasonable national power into uh, effective fighting performance. Now, okay, the French have a role to play in 1940, right? I mean, it's largely a French army that is taking on the Wehrmacht. But for sure, it's it's hard to, you can't, look away from Singapore and the fall of Tobruk without a sense of disaster.
1: And this brings us on to what, what you really uh, want to talk about, I think, in the book, which is oh, what's going wrong for the Commonwealth forces? Why aren't they doing well against German and Japanese forces? And to them, less yes, right, they, they've got a good doctrine. A good you know, doctrine is kind of
2: your, your manual for how you're going to fight. This is, this is, these are our processes, our practices. It's, it's pretty much about giving junior officers those closest to the front, freedom to do what they see it as fit. Um, so it's about innovation, aggression, speed. But they don't manage to convert that into reality. And in part, that's because they don't train effectively in the interwar years. And that's where there is this problem with the guilty men. They don't invest sufficiently to train. So the German army is doing massive core level maneuvers every year. The Brits do it once in the, in, in the period between the two wars. So they're just not training with the same intensity. And if you have... An army that's not trained you, you kind of need them to make up for for that lack of skill in other ways and they don't make up with it for it through morale and the narrative that kind of emerges through the book is to come back to your band of brother stuff and the censorship summaries then mm-hmm. we have a cohort of mostly working class young men who heard the stories of their fathers from the First World War about promises of a a better world post-conflict, and it didn't occur, who'd been through the worst of the Depression, and now they were being asked to sacrifice their one and only life for a state that had given them not a whole lot in return over the course of the last decade or two. And so they don't mobilise emotionally sufficiently to to fill the gap left by training, and this creates the disasters that you described. Brook, singapore france greece crete and elsewhere so it's of it's course it's a mixture of multiple factors um but i'd say two play out in that in that way
1: yeah i mean you know w- without wanting to indulge in any sort of anti-british kind of narrative here i mean they do seem to surrender rather easily on a lot of occasions
2: yeah i mean is that is that a consequence of them being british no i don't think so I think it is a consequence of a very specific set of sociodemographic realities and policies. You know, if you're okay if you're if you're a German soldier, you're also working class. You've also probably had a, a pretty rough time during the depression. Hmm. But there's some evidence that, that, that there was some social mobility and some rise in the in the quality of life between Fathers who'd fought in the First World War and sons who were going to fight in the Second World War. And there was certainly a vision, right? There was a vision for fight now, and the thing you will get in return will change your life. So there was that offer of of a future for which individuals might sacrifice. The problem for the British Tommy was they were really poorly paid. And then Churchill, for you know, for very good reasons and was reluctant to talk about social change. He said, well, listen, we'll fight the war, let's beat the enemy, and then if we have any money left, we'll talk about change. And you can kind of sympathize with that, but at the same time, it really, really, really missed the, the thing that soldiers wanted, which was a bit of quid pro quo, a bit of a mm-hmm. fight if. Give me something in return here, Winston. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I, I think it was that dynamic more than anything else that that caused some of these i mean there are other factors too right but i mean that for me is one of the
1: you know it's interesting though um that this is there is a um a discussion on this i mean george orwell writes about this in his wartime writings for example that it has to be a people's war so you know this this narrative is present in britain at the time
2: yeah i mean the people's war thing is interesting yeah um you know to what extent that's the problem I guess John isn't it I mean so guys like Orwell are saying this has to fight this war effectively it has to be a people's war we have to bring the people on board and enthuse them in this moment of crisis and the reality is even though it was a coalition government which had labor as part of it it was a Tory dominated coalition government that fought really a revolutionary war in a very conservative way and that left I think um, a large portion of the working class which also happened to be the main portion of the army, pretty dissatisfied with their lot. So I think, you know, in a revolutionary context, and this is, I think, is important for our current situation as well, if you're trying to mobilize people in a crisis, you have to be a bit more radical and creative, I think. Mm. And British state, it was was a war run by a conservative government,
1: really. Okay. Something else I learned from your book is that, whereas the German army had a doctrine of devolving responsibility down to local level and leaving it up to the initiative of, of officers and even NCOs the British army tried this but it didn't really work for them can you talk about that why that might have been and how that worked or didn't work
2: yeah so I mean I mean my sense of it is that the British British doctrine at the start of the war is not a million miles away from German doctrine of tactic basically mission control devolved command and control to those closest to the front who can see what's going on And and those individuals then can use their imagination, their drive, their energy, their expertise to solve problems. It's about speed and aggression and high morale. And and the British Army tries to kick off things like this, but for the reasons we've already discussed, it doesn't really work out. And this is where a bloke called Montgomery right, um, rocks up and he plays a a pretty important role. He comes into the uh, the desert in 1942 and he, he diagnoses the problem. He says, here is a poorly trained citizen army, that's you know it's in a bit of a funk um, and it needs a bit of a lift and so what I'm going to do is rather than devolve command and control I'm going to I'm going to bring it all in on me I'm going to rein it in we're going to fight a firepower heavy uh, way and um, it's going to be slow it's going to be attritional but it'll get the job done because there's one thing we're not short of it's kit you know and so there's this this you know this change in approach but that change in approach. Is in large part function of issues with morale and training and ideas.
1: Mm. So, yeah. so if I can, you know, if I can brutally vulgarize your thesis, John, from your book, and uh, you can, <laughs> uh, you know, M- Montgomery's approach is you line up a whole mass of artillery and you line up a, a load of air power and you, you blast, you know, the the enemy for as long as it takes, and then the troops move in and kind of occupy It's it's very firepower intensive and it's slow and it's very painstaking, but it. Yeah, it it does work in North Africa and in Italy to a degree, right?
2: It does, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, I, mean that's, I don't think that's a bad summary <laughs> anyway. You, yeah. you advance to contact, the enemy shoots at you, you hit the deck, uh, you call in fire support, as you say, through artillery or air power, you blast them, you advance to contact. You get shot at, you hit the deck, you call in. So it's, it's process, it's methodical, it gets the job done. But, 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 if time wasn't a factor, that would be fine. But Britain was borrowing vast, vast, vast amounts of money um, from the United States through lend lease effectively to fight this global war. And so it needed to win fast. Every day the war went on, Britain was more in debt to the Americans. And this slow and methodical approach basically, A, eventually bankrupted Britain, um, and B, kind of, you know, it, it didn't make them look good in the eyes of their allies. So, whereas you could argue, you know, Britain is leading the, the coalition against the Axis in 1940, 1941, certainly 1941, 1942, 1943, 1944, it's more of an American
1: and Soviet war
2: without any question.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was something that was really interesting. You said this to me the other day, John, and um, you know, had the British been in a position to win the war in the first couple of years, it would have been a British empire victory. But yeah. the, the, the British, in a way, don't win the war. The Americans win the war and the Russians, the Soviets. And so, you know, the British Empire is not, not a loser uh, in the war, but they don't achieve what they wanted to achieve.
2: Yeah, and, you know, your point at the start about myth and reality, I think, I think is, is an important one. There. It's, it's an American century. Mm. So the second half of the 20th century is it's, it's a Soviet century. Mm. And the first half of the century is a British century. And so I think, you know, the Second World War is, a, is an agent of change, um for many reasons and military history teaches us i think about geopolitics it teaches us about social dynamics and certainly in this case the, the performance of the army had geopolitical consequences
1: yeah i mean but before we, we get on to kind of the, the the final phase of the war i mean the americans were quite conscious of this though weren't they of um uh, you know asserting their primacy after the war and they used the financial thing as a lever
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the day almost, I think it's the day or the day after that, um, after Japan surrenders, they basically cancel Lend-Lease and Britain. I mean, so some authors kind of describe this period as another, as a financial Dunkirk for Britain. I mean, all of a sudden you owe us this money and we we want some of it, mate. So, you know, the Americans are generous in that, you know, Lend-Lease is a generous offer, but there's a big caveat which is we'd like Britain to open up its, its sterling area. It's, it's basically, it's protected markets. And so we see the Americans using the war to increase their financial and economic power, and they do it very effectively.
1: Yeah, and, you know, although, I mean, the British Empire is still around after the Second World War. It, yeah. You know, it, it, it doesn't outlast its aftershocks, really, does it?
2: No, I mean, again, there's a, well, there's a debate about when, when's the end. Is it mm. the consequence of the First World War? Is it a consequence of the Second World War or the wars of decolonization? And certainly, I think the, the current consensus, if you could say, is that the Second World War is is, is, is a fundamental kind of nail in the coffin, mm. shifting point, fulcrum, if you will,
1: um, the end of empire. I mean, they, could, they can't really afford it, though, my, is my point after the Second World War.
2: Yeah, so there's problems in Burma, there's problems in India, and um, there's problems in Palestine. There's a civil war going on in Greece, and you know, Mediterranean is an important geopolitical area for Britain, and it just can't afford to deal with these problems. So, whereas in the past they might have spent some money and sent some people, there was just no resource left. So they had to roll back, they had to retreat from empire. So yeah, the money thing, I mean, if you read, if you get a chance, read Dan Todman's wonderful new book on, on, on Britain in the Second World War, and it really goes into some of those economic factors in great depth, and it's, it's super.
1: But you know, let, let's let's move on to the more positive aspects because you know, Brit- Britain was on the winning side, did did win the war in, in the end. Uh, and your thesis, uh, John, was that, and both political and military factors improved the performance of, of Commonwealth forces in the in the last two years of the war.
2: Yeah, I mean, to start with the kind of military stuff, they do eventually sort doctrine out and develop approaches that that are more aggressive and effective in in defeating german and and japanese and indeed before that italian uh, forces so there's this grappling with this devolving of command and control if you remember and this kind of centralizing of command and control and certainly by 1943 early 1944 montgomery and commanders in the east recognize you can't get the job done unless you devolve command and control so they spend much more time and effort in training individuals and um, they develop new approaches which encourage this more aggressive and mobile um, form of warfare. So they kind of, they, they identify the problems, they're honest about it and they say, yeah, we haven't done so well. And, and then they, they, they grip the nettle and they, and they deal with it And in fairness. And it does turn, I think, you know, the British and Commonwealth armies by 19, late 1944 and uh, early 1945 are, is a pretty effective fighting force. And then the political stuff plays in as well. So, there's a Beveridge Report, if you've, you'd be familiar with that, late 1942. Then let's tell the listeners
1: what the Beveridge Report is before we...
2: Yeah, it's basically a blueprint for a post-war welfare state um, in the United Kingdom. and it's, it's, a, it's a study carried out by Sir William Beveridge, and it captures the imagination of the British population, but the Conservative government, for reasons we've already discussed, was a bit reluctant to kind of get into promises about post-war social change before the war was won, and they, you know, they shelved it. And this irritated you know, a chunk of the, of the civilian population, but what is clear from the censorship summary is it really bloody irritated the troops. They wanted this, this vision. So the army is quite clever about this. They bring in something called army education, ABCA, if you heard of it, the Army Bureau of Current Affairs, and they talk about social change. So effectively, they teach the soldier about society. It's a mass civic lesson for a big chunk of the young male population and, and female population of the United Kingdom. And through this discussion mechanism, British soldier kind of learns about the state, learns about how democracy works to a greater extent and thinks about how they can actually manifest change through the ballot box. So there's an interesting dynamic that comes out of the book, which is this relationship, I think, between social cohesion and combat cohesion. The experience of fighting, you know, radicalizes individuals. They, they're aware that they're part of a community and that the individual in Birmingham or whatever, building, building a weapon, this is as important to their welfare as is the individual sitting, you know, lying beside them in a foxhole or slit trench. So it creates this sense of an interconnected community. So, you know, the war, the, the experience of combat cohesion creates an awareness of the necessity for social cohesion. And then ABCA, the army Bureau of current affairs and army education kind of directs this Political feeling in, 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 a, in a meaningful way and in, in the context of britain in the in twentieth century that leads to the one thousand nine hundred and forty five labor victory in part um, and the kind of changes to the British political economy that associated with it
1: yeah, and the substantial transformation of british society post war
2: without doubt um, without doubt, and that lasted arguably you know until um, the year of thatcher
1: mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk again about some of the Commonwealth countries. So Australia's role, for example. One thing, again, I learned from your book was that, you know, Australia supplied very good troops, volunteers, at the start of the war. But then Australia has a dilemma because, you know, the Japanese are almost on their doorstep. So did this bring Australia closer to Britain or or did it start to, to sour the relationship?
2: I mean, again, debated. I mean, I think it probably it soured the relationship. I mean, so... Before the war, there'd been an understanding that Britain would come to the aid of the Antipodes in a crisis. and The Singapore strategy effectively was that, that, that a fleet would sail, there'd be hands to Singapore and it would protect Australia and New Zealand in the event of crisis. That didn't happen, right? And so there is a, a really quite explicit shift or pivot, especially from the Australians towards America, a recognition that Australian security can no longer rely solely on the United Kingdom, but has to accept American power and primacy in that in that space. So you know the war the war stresses and strains the bonds of Commonwealth and of Empire in a way that had you know powerful implications in the post-war years.
1: Mm-hmm. And another Commonwealth country we mentioned earlier, but I want to go back to is South Africa because in 1948, yeah. just after the war, you know. A new party wins the elections and there's the apartheid system brought in in South Africa. Did the war play into that or what do you think? Yeah, my sense,
2: so, yeah, my sense is that it does, right? So um, you have Afrikaners and English speakers um, fighting together on the front line. And this dynamic of combat cohesion you know, develops a greater sense of social cohesion. So the stresses between the two white races, if you will, in South Africa are, are reduced as a consequence of collective experience. And, and the book kind of explores this process of how the antagonisms that had animated the English-speaking and, and african speaking relationship were, were kind of undermined by the experience of collective sacrifice. And while at the same time, because blacks and Africans didn't participate meaningfully in the combat space, they were excluded from that, from that dynamic. And so kind of this racialized, racist society and, and racist army Um, Goes home, and the the kind of what seems to come out of the censorship summaries is that the soldiers were were attracted to the to the nationalist narrative, you know, from 1945 onwards. And it does appear to me, at least, um, and I build this this story in in the book that it's highly likely that veterans voted for the nationalists in '48, and that it's indeed highly possible that they they swung the whole election. So. I guess, I guess the, the broader interesting point is that you know, for a long time, military history was about guns and battles and great men. And then we started you know, engaging much more meaningfully in how society affected the conduct of war. Um, and now increasingly, you know, I think we have to look at how the experience of conflict affects societies to a greater extent. So how individuals go back home and how they enact social change.
1: Right, and one more question though, about the Commonwealth, John. Before we we, we move to the end, uh, which is India, because that same year in nineteen forty eight, India became independent, and and was that a result of the war, or what do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 fascinating in a way. So you have got two point five million Indians serving in the Indian Army in the Second World War, which is the biggest volunteer army effectively in history, and that's been kind of touted as a major achievement. And in some ways, I mean, it is when I mean, you consider the divisions. That were in India at the time, but at the same time it was a tiny proportion of the, of the population. And Britain, you know, Britain tries to pull uh, the Indian National Congress, INC, into the war effort, but they basically, they refused to be part of Britain's war. And by not offering a really compelling vision of a post-war India, a free India, an India that was, fr- that was free to choose its own path, Britain really failed to mobilise, I think, India in a, really, in a really powerful way. I mean, effectively, there's a, there's a massive, quiet, if you will, revolution taking place from 1942, at least, onwards, the Quit India movement. Big chunks of the INC are are put in prison for the duration of the war. At um, you know, one stage, I think, it counted, something like 60 battalions of British soldiers garrisoning India, which is effectively 10 divisions. When you think of I mean, I mean, that's a real serious combat power, just maintaining social order uh, on the subcontinent. So the war is, is crippling for India. There's a famine, three million people die. I mean, three million people. You know, it finishes um, India's relationship with Britain in a really clear, and powerful way. Um,
1: I mean, you know, these kind of narratives, they are surprising in some ways. They don't fit into the mythology that we mentioned at the start of, of World War II, do they?
2: Yeah, I I don't think they do. I think it's an ugly war for Britain. Um, you know, in, in, in the spaces where Britain, which was traditionally powerful, Britain fought a, fa- a very effective war. You know, in, in the space of expertise, right, in the breaking of the Enigma Code, scientists who participated in the atom bomb, Britain excels in the space. You know, the Royal Navy, I think, largely covers itself in in glory. The The Royal Air Force flattens Germany, which is morally questionable, but you know, most, the most recent historiography suggests it was really quite effective in terms of the destruction of the German economy and the destruction of German morale on the home front. So in, in some spaces, Britain fights the war very effectively, but where it does it less so, I think, is in the domain of the working-class army, um, where you know a young fella from Leeds really has the power to determine the outcome of a battle. If he legs it, you're in trouble, whereas... The young fella from Leeds is not probably piloting, you know, um, an airplane. It's, it's, it's a grammar school boy or, a, or someone from the higher echelons of British society. So the space for problems as a consequence of socio-demographic issues is greater, I think, in the, in, in the army context. So it's messy. Um, it's a mixed war for Britain and uh, in terms of geopolitics i think it's disastrous and then it leads to socio-political change as we've discussed and depending on your political persuasion that's a very good outcome for the british people or a less good outcome
1: sure i I really recommend john's book which discusses all these things which are not part of maybe traditional military history or or certainly not the mythology of second world war it's fighting the people's war Uh, just in conclusion jonathan uh, can you tell us about your next project that you're moving on to now (laughs)
2: <laughs> Thanks, John. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try and write a, a three-volume history of the Second World War, which will keep me busy, I think, for ten years. Um, so I'm gonna try and use the methods and the questions and the ideas from fighting the people's war and expand it out to look at the whole war. To what extent was the war a, a driving force in in demographic, socio-political change in the, in the 20th century and all sorts of other things? And I want to properly bring women
1: into the story and and do some hopefully do some creative things. Um, will Ireland be incorporated into this history or is there space?
2: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, Ireland didn't get enough um, in fighting the People's War, but I, I think um, we'll have to do a case study on a neutral country, and I think Ireland would be the right one to do there. So, might well follow. I've got some nice sources on my granddad, and might well follow him through the war. He gets married during the war, and there's a love story, and it might be quite an interesting, interesting way to
1: tell Ireland's story in that, in that period. Sounds great. Okay Jonathan Fennell, thank you very much. Thanks John.
0: So that was John Dorney talking to Dr. Jonathan Fennel. If you liked this episode, please go to our website to see all our archive of back episodes on irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or like and follow us on Facebook facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. we love to hear from you. Let us know where you're listening in the world, what you like about the shows what you'd like us to cover as well. So until next time, my name is Cottle Brennan. Thank you very much.